One woman, one horse, one goal. 48 states for domestic violence awareness. Hello and welcome to Have Horse Will Travel, the official podcast for the Centaur Ride. I'm Meredith Cherry and this is my co-host Apollo. In this episode, I will be talking about trailblazers. That is to say, the people who have done horse traveling of long distances before my ride, especially the ones that I read about or talked to or otherwise learned about as I was preparing to start this ride and was looking for information and advice and just a general idea of how to do this, what have people done before, what equipment did they use, how did they figure out where they were going, all the questions that you probably have for me. I had before I started this ride, and I did it by researching these trailblazers. Just to clarify, when I talk about horse travel, I call it that because there are so many different things you can do with your horses, and some of them involve going great distances. The most popular form of this would be endurance riding, which includes a designation called LD, or long distance. And granted, I'm doing long distances, but it's entirely different than endurance riding. There are some similarities, and I actually do use some endurance tack, but overall it's a very different endeavor and requires different equipment, different planning, different training, different conditioning for the horse involved and the rider and so forth. So I will not be talking about endurance riders. People who make trips on their horse into wilderness areas for extended camping trips, be it a week or a month or a weekend, whatever, also have some similarities to what I'm doing, but again, not a lot of overlap. Obviously some, such as that they probably have saddlebags with camping gear and food and whatnot, but those are also not the kind of people that I'll be talking about here. For me, horse travel, for what I'm talking about as I do it, is a day after day after day journey that goes on for more than the length of a vacation and is with the intent of getting somewhere, not just having a pleasurable trail ride for a long vacation in the backcountry. This is instead traveling to get to a destination or to get through a series of destinations. All of the trailblazers that I'll be talking about had a specific route that they either needed to travel along that route or they needed to get to the endpoint of that route. And it was a very, very, very long route, more than could be done in a couple weeks or even a couple months. These are season-long or years-long journeys. Obviously, way back in the day, everyone traveled by horse, although usually travel was limited to an easy half-day journey from home so that you could also return home in the same day. Or if you were going somewhere further that was going to take more than a day, you would do it in a couple of days' stages. You might not use your own horse. In any case, it was typically within your local region for business, for example. 
or say the traveling country doctor would travel by horse, but not with a long-term plan of a big route that needed to be done. It was more of a day-to-day sort of way to get around, like jumping in your car, but slower. Obviously, there were longer horse journeys, such as the Oregon Trail and other explorations that required horses for some or all of it. Luckily, I don't have the restrictions on my travel and the same sorts of problems and issues that those travelers had. I would not really want to be in their shoes. So for example, the Oregon Trail. Typically, the pioneers who are going to be traveling the Oregon Trail or any of the many, many other trails that are less well-known would make their way to St. Louis, which was the traditional starting point. Obviously, they had to get there, but there was more public transportation of some sort or another available, stagecoach, for example, and they would get to St. Louis somehow, not usually on their own horse. And in St. Louis or surrounding towns, they would buy a team of draft animals and a covered wagon and supplies to get them all the way across the Great American Desert, as they called it, and make it to Oregon. Many of them did not make it. Many of them were unable to afford a good team and a good wagon, and so they had to make do with much less, or with a really undesirable team. It might not be horses, and it might not be a covered wagon, but it would be some sort of animal power, for the most part, to get them across the American West. By the time the settlers were following the trail, there was already a decently well-established set of trails to choose from. And so they could follow along with all the other people, depending on what year of the migration they may or may not see other pioneers going across. Usually they would band together in some sort of group for safety. As they traveled across the plains and then the mountains and then the deserts and then the mountains and finally made their way to Oregon or California, depending on where they forked off at the end. They faced a great many challenges that I am so glad I don't have to deal with. For example, there were no stores. Later, supply stations would pop up along the way, but initially, of course, there were no settlements. It was being settled. There were sometimes trading posts later, especially. But for the most part, there wasn't anywhere to get more supplies, and there wasn't anywhere to get new livestock if your livestock didn't make it, if your draft team didn't make it. And there was, of course, no vet and no doctor. There was no barbed wire, which is a problem that I often face in the less hospitable areas that those pioneers also traveled through. They could get down to the water and water their animals and themselves. But when I traveled, what used to be the Oregon Trail and the Santa Fe Trail. All of that land is now private property. And so anywhere that there's a creek or a river or a spring, it's all fenced over now. And so it was very difficult for me to get water. But then they could get water, although sometimes the water was very unclean and 
sometimes in the peak of the migration and in the peak of the summer, it was dried up. So I'm glad I don't have to deal with that, especially with all the diseases that came with it. A lot of people died from diseases, especially from the unclean water. And so, of course, I'm very glad I don't have to deal with that sort of travel situation. But they did a lot that was kind of amazing, looking back at it, that they were even able to get all the way across the country with such basically primitive means and very little ability to carry supplies for such a long journey. Oh, they had wagons, but at the same time, there's only so much you can load up a wagon. And keep in mind, they also had to put on their things to start up their homes and their farms or their businesses wherever it was that they would eventually settle, like farming equipment, plows, and that kind of thing. It was kind of amazing they were able to do that at all, and that they were able to pick what I found to be going along some of those same routes to be the easiest way to get across an otherwise really not great place to be traveling by animal power. Whether you're riding a horse or in a horse-drawn vehicle, the areas they went across, especially once they hit the Rocky Mountains, were very difficult. A lot of, of course, mountains, rocks, then a lot of arid areas with, even out on the plains, a lot of arid areas, not just the deserts. There weren't a lot of watering holes. There were some major rivers, but they didn't all connect in a way that you could necessarily just follow them all the way across the country. You sometimes had to skip between for days or weeks without seeing a major source of water. And if you got to the established watering hole that's a, you know not a big river, it might be all used up already. It might have been dried up in the hot summer. So it was difficult. And I definitely came to have a good appreciation of that as I was riding. As I was preparing for the ride, though, of course, I couldn't have my own first-hand knowledge of it. But it was interesting reading about the Oregon Trail. I read a book by Rinker Buck called The Oregon Trail, and it was really excellent. There will be an affiliate link for any of the books that I talk about in the episode description for this podcast. They talked about how all the Oregon Trail stuff was done back during the Oregon Trail, but they traveled it by mule team with a covered wagon that was an authentic wagon and without a support vehicle in the modern times. I don't remember exactly when they did it, but it was in the last 20 years. I said they didn't have a support vehicle, which is kind of remarkable in that there are reenactors who do the Oregon Trail and other trails as a group. They'll all get out there with their teams and their wagons and they will also have a truck and trailer caravan that more or less follows along and takes care of all of the hard parts. Of course, not to dismiss that what they're doing isn't hard, but the, really the, they take care of setting up camp so that when the teams come rolling in, everything's set, there's a hot meal, there's hot water in the campers and whatever. Way, way different than not having a support vehicle. And of course, with a support vehicle, if anything goes wrong, you can just load your horses up and trailer to the next spot or trailer to the vet. Or if something breaks on your wagon, your support vehicle can show up and help you repair it. 
all that kind of stuff makes it so much easier. But the brothers who did the journey that they wrote about in this book, they did not have a sport vehicle, but they did rely on local people. You know, it's not the great American desert anymore as much because it's been settled. So they got into a few scrapes, but there were always people they could find within walking distance. It might be a couple hours walk, but they could get help and have local people come and help them with repairs or get more grain for their mules or whatever it was that they needed. So it was really interesting seeing how they did their journey and the challenges they faced. There was, of course, the difference that they had a wagon and I was riding and that they had three animals and I only had one. But there were, of course, some similarities. For example, they had to take some major state highways, which I knew I would be taking. So it was good to see their perspective on the issues involved with having livestock on the side of the highway. They didn't have a support vehicle, as I said, and so that also was very similar to my journey because I would not have a support vehicle either and would have to depend on locals entirely. So it was nice to see how they went about finding that kind of help and that it was even available, that people were willing to help them. And I have found that to be true in my own case. Another useful book that I read to prepare that was from the 1800s was the U.S. Cavalry Handbook. And this was written for the cavalry for basically for new recruits to learn about horsemanship and to learn about horse medicine and how to do anything that a cavalryman would need to know. And so... It was particularly for those who would be campaigning somewhere where they would perhaps have a supply train, but would have to ride out away from the supply train for overnight or a couple days or whatever. And so they would also have to carry some supplies on their saddle, as well as, of course, their weapons and whatnot. It was really a useful book for preparing for this ride because when it was written and who it was written for would not necessarily have a supply train or in modern terms a support vehicle. They would have to travel with their horses loaded with some supplies and while they didn't have to carry maybe more than some cooking supplies and a bedroll Keep in mind that back then, they did not have the ultra-high-tech, ultra-lightweight camping gear for minimalist backpacking and that kind of thing that we have now. So their bedrolls were pretty freaking heavy. And their cooking supplies, their pot or pan or whatever it was they had, and fire starter and all of that kind of stuff was much heavier than any similar gear that we would carry now. And so they might have had less items, but they had about the same weight. And so it was useful for me to look at how much could they carry? Also, how fast could they go? How far could they go in a day? Because these campaigns would go for months, sometimes. They would go a very, very long time, day after day. And when you're talking about horse travel, 
it's not so much a matter of how much you go in one day as how much you can sustain it day after day. Granted, you take days off. But that was also part of what I was learning about. How often do you need days off when you're traveling like this? They had all of this calculated because it's the army and that's what they do. And so they had all of these wonderful, useful calculations about how much a horse can carry with the rider and the, the bedroll and everything and the saddle, how far they can go, and also some really interesting stuff about horse medicine for when you don't have actual regular vet medicine options. I haven't needed any of that because I'm never actually outside the range of where a vet could service with a farm call, but still useful, interesting information. So I read that one cover to cover and found quite a bit of good information in there. Once automobiles became considered more than a passing trend and horses were out and cars were in, horses became known as hay burners. They were looked down upon as a form of transportation. In the 19-teens, a group of four men decided that they were going to show that the horse still had value, and they went on a 48-state horseback ride. They started in the state of Washington, near Olympia, and there's actually a museum on Bainbridge Island that has a big section of the museum dedicated to these men because two of them were from Bainbridge Island. And I was able to go there and take Apollo there when I was in the Seattle area, and that was a really special thing. So these men called themselves the Overland Westerners, and they decided they were going to ride to 48 state capitals, and that they would take four years to do it, and they'd make a big loop and end up in San Francisco after hitting their last capital of Sacramento. They hoped that by doing this, that they would become famous, and that they would also, of course, as I said, highlight that horses are still a useful form of transportation. And so they did it. They started in Washington, went down to Oregon, and then picked their way across, headed east, did all of the eastern states, and looped their way down south and headed back west, and ended up in San Francisco. They had their four riding horses and also some pack horses and a dog. Of all of the horses, only one of them made it the whole way. Others, they either traded or they died or they sold them and bought new ones because they were doing a lot of miles more per day than those horses could sustain. They wanted to show horses were useful, but also how horses were looked at was as a vehicle, as a tool. And so they weren't bonding with their horses per se as they traveled around and they were using them to get where they were going and to make their point. And so if a horse wore out or got hurt, then they would sell it and they would buy another one. And that's just how it was done. And so they did this ride in four years and completed it just as they'd planned. They did not get the lasting fame that they wanted. They really didn't get any fame that they were hoping for. Even as they rode into San Francisco, people were complaining about those hay burners on the streets, making messes. 
And so the men who did this ride were somewhat disillusioned, I think, by the end. As an example for my ride, it was interesting that they were able to do this and that they, you know, they they must have done at least something right that they were able to actually do this ride. But they weren't really a great example for how I wanted to do my ride. And their route was not particularly even useful to look at their map. It was much different of a path than I was planning. I did learn some lessons on what not to do, like don't go as fast as they did for the miles per day or per month or whatever. They also rode through the winter, which is something I am not interested in doing. So there's that. Another early 48 state ride was done by Frank Heath, and he wrote about it in a travelogue that I will also put a link for in the description. And his travelogue was probably the most useful of any of the things that I read or people that I talked to included. It's a travelogue, not a memoir, so it was not riveting reading. It reads more like a, well, it's a travelogue. It, that's how it reads. So on day 37, the weather is such and such and went so many miles, met this and that person, and so forth. And so it's not riveting reading, but it's full of great information for what it's really like to travel by horse. So he was doing this in the 1920s, and he rode to all 48 states, following a different path than the Overland Westerners had. Also as a path, not really useful for my plan, but as a whole, he was, of course, going to 48 states. There's bound to be similarities, even if I don't go through the same towns or the same parts of the state, the terrain will be similar, the weather, there will be similarities, the, there's all sorts of you know, parallels to what I would be experiencing. So I was able to read it and get all sorts of information about what to expect. How far did he go each day? What did he carry? Not just weight, but supplies. He was riding in the 20s when pretty much everyone traveled by car by that point except for the very poor. He was riding on the roads with the vehicles, which was very different than today's roads and vehicles. But still, he would have been facing similar problems as to there were just less horses around because people weren't using them as much. And so finding places to stay that were horse suitable each night. He camped along the side of the road a lot, which is something I'm not really able to do because of modern laws and property ownership issues. Uh, it was a different enough from when he did it that was no longer really an option for me, although I know some people still do that, but that's a discussion for a later time. Anyway, as he rode along with his horse, Gypsy Queen, he actually had the same horse the whole time. He started in D.C., he actually started just outside of D.C. and rode into D.C. and then counted that as his starting point. Made a big loop and came back to D.C. where he ended and then rode home. He also took about four years. So I'm seeing a theme here. I figured they both did it in four years. Guess it's going to take me four years. Of course, he also rode in the winter. I forgot to account for that. So it's taking me a little bit longer just because I do stop for the winters. 
he tried to ride every single mile. He did not want to get any help as far as hauling his horse anywhere, which was now an option for him, unlike the Overland Westerners, which would have found it much more difficult to get help getting anywhere. So they, of course, did ride every mile. Frank Heath had the option occasionally of not riding a section, but he tried to ride everything. But he did have a problem when he got down into the Gulf states. I forget exactly which one, somewhere around Mississippi. He had to bypass a region because of an outbreak of an infectious disease for horses. And he didn't want to risk Gypsy Queen getting the disease or to not have her catch it, but still be quarantined because they were quarantining entire counties for this disease. And so he decided to take a train and loaded her up on the uh, livestock car and took a train past the problem area. But other than that, he rode the whole thing. And so I really enjoyed reading his travel log, and I made so many notes and learned so much from him. He was the first person to do a solo 48-state ride, and he did it with one horse, no pack horse. So that was very encouraging for me because I did not want to take a pack horse. So it was nice to know that somebody had already done this without a pack horse. The next historic trailblazer was Messany Wilkins, who wrote The Last of the Saddle Tramps. And The Last of the Saddle Tramps is a really entertaining book. So even if you are not planning on traveling by horse or really don't even care much about horse travel, read her book anyway, because it's just a fun read. She started in Maine and she was in her 60s, I want to say, or 70s. She was she would qualify for AARP for sure when she started her ride. She started not for any desire to explore and see the world. She'd lived a quiet life in a small town for her whole life, but she no longer had any ties there. All her family had died or moved away, and her health was suffering in the main winters, and she just couldn't stay there anymore. And so she decided the only way that she could really afford to move was to pack everything on her horse and head out. So she did with her dog and her horse and a little bit of belongings. She sold off her house and left and she decided she was going to go to California because the weather was nice and she needed nice weather for her health. And so she did. This would be in the 1950s. She rode first south directly because she needed to get south before the winter came. And then she would turn and head west. And since her plan was simply to get to California, it didn't matter to her so much about being famous like the Overland Westerners wanted or doing every mile like Frank Heath was trying to prove that he could do. She was just out there having an adventure and enjoying life on her way to her new home. And she did a darn good job of it. So she traveled, as I said, south to begin with, and she relied on the kindness of strangers along the way to help her with places to stop for the night. She eventually ended up being given a pack horse. Her original horse and her pack horse made it all the way to California. 
she did accept some hauling for her horse before she got the pack horse, I believe. And she had all sorts of adventures that she really didn't seem to have studied much about what she might experience. She didn't really seem to know much about the rest of the country, really. I mean, she knew about California, but when she was in the desert, she was just amazed by some of the stuff that she saw in the desert that she didn't even know could exist in this world, like those weird creek beds that have no water in them and then suddenly have water in them. She experienced a gully washer up close and personal, almost got swept away in the night, and all sorts of fun stories like that. She did obtain some level of fame as she went across the country unintentionally, but she found that she could fund her ride by selling, I believe she called them postcards. They were little mementos, just little pieces of paper, really, of her ride uh, with a photo on them. And so she'd sell them for a few cents, and people were so excited to meet her and see what she was doing that she was able to fund her ride as she went by selling these cards. When she got to Wyoming, she got there in time for Frontier Days, and that is a huge celebration. And the local paper and rodeo officials had all heard about her ride at that point and had heard that she was headed that way and invited her to come and actually be a part of their event, of the rodeo there, which was a huge honor for her. That was pretty cool to see that she could not even attempt any sort of marketing. This was pre-social media, of course. It was all newspaper and radio was the big way to hear about things, and she managed to make it in enough local papers across the country that word spread ahead of her and people knew who she was when she'd show up in a town they'd say oh I know who you are you're Messany Wilkins and you can stay with us so that was pretty cool to read about as far as information that I learned from it for my ride there were some odds and ends but nothing that really stands out but it was a good read and it was enlightening as to the overall adventures and the the feel of the experience, you know, her thoughts and feelings as she traveled from the beginning when she didn't know what she was doing to the end when she definitely knew she, what she was doing. And being of a certain age and in poor health, she still was able to do this. And so now anytime I meet someone who says, oh, I'm too old to do that. I'd love to travel by horse, but I'm just too old, then I tell them to read Messany Wilkins' book because, no, you're not too old. She did it, and you can too. Not that I would necessarily recommend that people do horse traveling, but don't let age be a barrier. That's my point. There were several more modern rides that were influential for me. Some of them were going on while I was preparing, and so I was actively following along with them. One of these horse travelers is the Three Mules ride that goes up and down the California coast year after year after year. I probably should have googled before I started recording this how many years he's been doing it. I don't recall offhand, but it's been 15 maybe that he's been going up and down the coast. And this is just how he lives. And so 
I followed him on Facebook, and you can too. He's a really interesting character. He just, he walks, he doesn't ride, and he leads his mules and just camps along the side of the road or at people's hospitality. Another one that I was interested in learning from was Unbranded. I first heard about Unbranded at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival in Nevada City, California, which is right near where I live. And at that film festival, this film, I hadn't heard of it until I was looking at the films that would be showing, and there was a film about a horse traveler. And I thought, oh, how timely. I'm getting ready for my ride. This is about a year before I started. So I was into the planning stage of looking more specifically at the numbers and the gear and the tack and the very specific details. I had a very overall plan, but I needed to iron down the real details. And so I said, yeah, I'll go see that. And I did, and it was an awesome film. It's called Unbranded, and I believe it's on Netflix now. Or you can just look them up. They have a website. I'll put that in the links in this episode description. It was a group of four men. The leader of the group is named Ben Masters. And he and these three friends of his rode Mustangs from the Mexican border to the Canadian border through almost entirely wilderness areas. Their goal was to highlight the wilderness that still exists in America and to help with highlighting them so that they could continue to be preserved for future generations. And he also, of course, using Mustangs, was highlighting the American Mustang. He got Mustangs from the BLM pens, so fresh off the range Mustangs, trained them. He also had a few that were already well-trained. And so he had his riding Mustangs, and he had extras for packing and another one that was simply dedicated to audiovisual equipment because he planned on making this documentary and it is a beautiful amazing sit on the edge of your seat kind of film if you're not much one for documentaries you'll probably still like it I don't know what there's not to like about it and when I was done watching it I bought the coffee table book that Ben Masters was there selling that had even more details about the ride that he couldn't fit into the film. And I found that to be very useful. His ride was different in many ways, particularly that he was sticking to wilderness areas and I was trying to avoid wilderness areas. But other than that, there was a lot of useful information for my ride. It was just an amazing, powerful story and very inspirational as well. As I was getting closer and closer to my departure date and getting a little bit nervous about this crazy idea I had, it was a very beautiful, inspiring film and book to look at. There were a few other horse travelers that... I read about or followed on Facebook or looked through their website. But of the many, many, many resources that I found, the few that I have talked about in this episode were the most influential and the most useful and also the most interesting. So even if you are not planning on traveling by horse for a day or four years, Even if you don't plan on getting into a saddle at all, 
these might still be interesting for you to look at. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to my podcast and check out all of the links in the description. You can follow my adventures on my website, www.centaurride.org, C-E-N-T-A-U-R-I-D-E dot O-R-G. And in the next episode, I will be talking about the specific details that go into planning my route, how I decide where I'm going, and why. So I hope you continue listening. I release a podcast episode every week. So until next time, bye-bye.